Welcome to the Jay Kim Show. This is your host, Jay Kim. I am an investor, author, and fitness entrepreneur. And for the first time in Asia, I sit down with the world's most brilliant minds in business, investing, and entrepreneurship. You'll learn all the secrets, strategies, and formulas to becoming a successful entrepreneur directly from the masters. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insight to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's show guest certainly needs no introduction. His name is Seth Godin, and he is perhaps the most famous marketer in the entire world. He is a successful entrepreneur, a public speaker, and the author of 18 books now that have been bestsellers around the world and have been translated into more than 35 languages. He writes about everything from marketing to leadership to personal development, and I'm sure you're well familiar with many of his bestselling books, including Lynchpin, Permission Marketing Tribes, The Dip, Purple Cow. In addition to his writing and public speaking, Seth is a founder of a couple of internet companies, Yo-Yo Dine back in the day, and as well as Squidoo, the latter of which whose co-founder Megan Casey has also been on our show. His blog, which you can find by simply typing Seth into a Google search, is one of the most popular in the world, and he was recently inducted into the Direct Marketing Hall of Fame. So Seth also happens to be very down-to-earth, insightful, and honest. He doesn't take meetings, and he doesn't watch television. And he asks on record for you not to email him. So suffice it to say that we are extremely fortunate to have him on the show today. He's been one of my personal inspirations for many, many years. And I was very excited to speak with him today. When I first reached out to Seth to be one of the inaugural guests of my show, he actually kindly declined. And he said, Jay, I'd rather be your 40th guest than your first. And lo and behold, here we are 40 episodes later. And of course, he fulfilled his end of the bargain. And true to his word, he came on to my show for the 40th episode. So I know you guys are going to get a ton, a ton of insights from him in today's episode. So without further ado, here is Seth Godin. Seth, thank you so much for coming on the show. We are so excited to have you here. And for our audience in Asia, most of which I'm sure have heard of you, so I'm not going to, I'll I'll allow them to simply Google search your name, Seth, and they'll be able to read everything that they need to know. But that all said, if you could introduce yourself in one sentence, what would you say? I'm Seth Godin. I'm a teacher, and sometimes I'm a blogger and an entrepreneur. Very concise and very succinct, as always. Um, okay, well, thank you again for being on the show. Uh, we're excited to, to be out here. And I want to start with a notion, a, a concept that you discuss a lot. And it's particularly relevant, I feel, within the Asian community. Kids growing up and their parents being quite conservative, wanting them to get a stable job and plug into the system versus perhaps exploring a quote-unquote passion or calling. Now, you've gone on the record before saying that a passion or calling is nonsense. So please uh, elaborate on that. Let's start with Carnegie Hall, where I've spoken a couple times to students from Juilliard and other places. Mm. I think we can agree that this is the pinnacle for someone who has devoted their life to learning the cello. And it's easy to imagine that a kid who starts at the age of three and practices three or four hours a day and then gets picked 
by a teacher and then gets picked by Juilliard and then gets picked to be at the executive level at Carnegie Hall has succeeded as an artist. But the thing is, they're not artists. They are cogs in the symphony industrial complex. They have been taught from the age of three to play the music as written. That playing it as written is a compliance activity. And one of the things that happened at Juilliard recently that was very sad is they stopped having guest lectures because students would rather be in the practice room and they weren't going to hear people like Emmanuel Axe talking about their life. The problem with the practice room is that it teaches you to be a cog in a system that doesn't need you anymore. That the career opportunities for an excellent cello player are nil. Hmm. Compare this person to Yo-Yo Ma, who is not an excellent cello player. He's a genius, and there's a difference, because he does not play the music as written, because he is exploring the edges, because he is the one and only. He is the one that is worth seeking out. And there, in that analogy, I hope we can see the problem. The problem is that competence is now overrated, Mm -hmm. that in a world where everyone is connected, it's easier to find a competent supplier than ever before. And if you can define what you need, you can find someone cheaper. And that means there's a race to the bottom. And people are trying to win the race to the bottom by working more hours for less money and becoming ever more obedient. And therein lies very little happiness and very little success. And my argument is that there's an alternative. And the alternative is to do the emotional labor, to have the guts to speak up and to stand up and to connect and to lead and to solve interesting problems. And that doesn't happen because you got an A in first grade and second grade and third grade and practiced more in fourth grade. It happens because you grew up in a culture that encouraged you to explore the edges with a sense of generosity. So that's a rant, but there you go. Thank you for that. I think that, I think one of the, one of the problems that we face in Hong Kong, and I'm sure it's very similar to the tri-state area, is, is, is money. So when people living in this sort of you know, modern first world city, financial capital, if you will, that requires, has a high cost of living, requires a lot of money just to, you know, to get by, so to speak, oftentimes that is the primary driver behind someone's career choice is to make the most money as possible or enough to to have a comfortable life and there's a there's a floor that they think a, a seeming minimum that they need to make in order to be happy so what what advice would you give to people that are in this situation where they think that money will perhaps solve all of their problems and it's also a it's dangerous when you're younger because you 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 chase you end up chasing the wrong things. So how do you square the circle, so to speak, for a younger person or someone that's stuck in a job, just chasing the money? Well, you've asked the question so beautifully. Uh, it is profound in its pathos, because if I had substituted the word heroin for money, I think <laughs> that most of us would look at that and say, "Well, that's absurd. Just don't become a heroin addict." because we all know that becoming a heroin addict rarely leads to long-term happiness or contribution. But if you start by saying, well, I'm a heroin addict and I need to get more heroin, so how should I be able to do my job every day to get enough money to buy more heroin? We'd all say, well, this is stupid. Don't do that. That's Mm -hmm. clearly 
immature, ill-founded, incorrect. Well, the same thing is true now, which is that when your parents or grandparents set out on this path, there was an exchange to be made. And the exchange was by bringing hard work and insight along with the compliance, you could move up several notches in the standard of living. And yes. if you have grown up without healthcare or without adequate plumbing, moving up several notches in the standard of living is really urgent. But now in the world that you're talking about, the chances that you're going to move up several notches from how you grew up are zero. There aren't several notches available to move up. Hmm. That the money is being used as a cudgel to get you to comply, even though you actually don't need it that you can find plumbing and healthcare for way less money than you're paying now and use the freedom you've got to do work that matters. Now, if you want to turn that work that matters into a great income, it's way easier than if you're not doing work that matters. Right. Or you can say, I'm having such a good time doing work that matters, I'm not willing to trade it off for even any increase in income. That's fine too. So that you know, when, when someone like Amanda Palmer builds a career as a musician, she could give up some of what she's done and make even more money, but she has enough. She has more than enough. And she gets to do what she loves to do, which is her work. And there's 20,000 people that would miss her if she stopped doing it. And it feels to me like that's more important than living three stories higher in the apartment building you are currently in. Hmm. But do you think that that's a, it's more of a personal quest that, that one must fulfill? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a framing almost, a mental framing of how much is enough uh, and, and a personal journey. I mean, was there, Seth, in your own career, in your own life, was there a point early on when perhaps you were misguided and you were chasing money more than, than doing good work? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you about that. But first, let me remind people that the reason that we feel the way we do is not human nature, it's marketing. That the way marketing works is it makes us dissatisfied with the status quo so that we will buy what is being promoted. The more marketing there is in people's lives, the less satisfied they are with what they have. And we now are surrounded by more marketing than ever before. Hmm. So understand this is something people did to you. So for me, you know, when I was in college, I co-founded the largest student-run business in the United States. And we had 400 employees and I got paid $50 a week. And the reason I got paid $50 a week was it was loosely affiliated with Tufts where I was a student. Mm -hmm. And so we got to use their payroll system in an office on campus. And in exchange, I got paid $50 a week. And what I realized from that experience was that I wouldn't trade it for anything. That the freedom that came from being able to do something that looked like business, but not feeling like I had to maximize my return was fabulous. So then I got to Stanford Business School. Stanford Business School, a temple of capitalism and making a lot of money. And I was there the year before Apple launched the Macintosh. So it was heady times in Palo Alto. And my fellow students were getting offers to make $150,000 a year leaving school. And I took a job making $30,000 a year. And again, I did it on purpose. I'm not, and it's not because I was a good person. It's because I was too immature to say, wait, 
this is costing me $120,000. I shouldn't do this. I was immature in the sense that I wanted to go on a journey. And I'm so glad that happened to me because I have stayed on that journey ever since. And, you know, my, my college reunion came around, I don't know when it was, 30, my 30th reunion. And I didn't go, but I heard from a lot of people about how unhappy they were. That 30 years later, they have $5 million in the bank or $10 million in the bank, and now they're gonna start looking for a life. And that's a sad place to be, I think. So, I think the people that, in my experience, that have, it's exactly the same. Uh, you know, I didn't, I actually didn't, I actually went the route of money. So uh, it was a bit different for me. But having done that and having now, you know, built a career in perhaps a, a, a more rigid field, after a decade or 15 years, now, you know, you start looking back and you start thinking, hmm, maybe I should have taken the $30,000 job that get, allowed me freedom or gone on that trip overseas or taken that post somewhere else instead of doing the cookie cutter path. And so when I read your book, Your Turn, which is uh, phenomenal, completely different than any of your other books, which was refreshing and just beautifully put together. Um, Thank you. And you, you said you wrote the book to give it away. So let's talk about the book because when I read it, it was it, it was almost like a devotional. Like every single page had packed both an image and just a a single page could be read and something could be taken away from each page. So this notion of you know why are people waiting to be picked as there is no right moment. This is the right moment. Can you can you talk on that for a bit? Well, let's get back to. Th- this brainwash that happened. So the two pieces are capitalists and industrialists want compliant cogs for a system that needs them. Yes. And second, marketers need people who are unhappy with the status quo so that they will spend more money. It's a virtuous cycle. Virtuous, not for us, but for them. And one way that you can enforce it is with a lottery mindset. So that what you say to the masses is, well, every once in a while we pick somebody and the person we pick gets all the good treats. And we will chronicle all of that in the media. So you get to watch them fly their private jet and you get to see them on their reality show and maybe you could even vote for them. And that picking feels like what we are supposed to aspire to. That if we just comply enough and work hard enough, we'll get picked. And once we get picked, we get the treats. And it turns out that that's just all a lie. And that particularly in this window, and I hope it doesn't close too soon, of everyone having their own media channel, Mm -hmm. of everyone being able to put their ideas into the world, the people who are making a difference, succeeding, and getting a good ride are the ones who picked themselves. The ones who said, well, actually, I'm going to have a podcast and no one can stop me. Mm -hmm. And actually, I'm going to do freelance consulting and not wait for McKinsey to hire me. And actually, I'm going to invest in local businesses and not wait for Goldman Sachs to pick me. So that we, you know, the, the powers that be were really shaking in their boots for 15 years. Because, for example, Yahoo came along and completely upended the TV industrial complex. 
that the brands that had been around for 50 years, ABC, CBS, NBC, Paramount, et cetera, were threatened by two people who were college students in Palo Alto. Right. And then Google did it to the entire advertising business. Between Google and Facebook, 80% of all online ad dollars, which is more and more of all ad dollars, go to those two companies. And then Amazon showed up out of nowhere with a guy who had no experience in the book industry and took that industry and took it upside down. So they're afraid that they will lose compliance from the audience and from the employees. And so they've re-upped the ante of what does it mean to get picked and tried to build walls. But we don't have to settle for that if we don't want to. But the cost to us is that in the short run, you maybe don't get the same regular paycheck. And in the short run, maybe you don't get the same assurances. But what I know is that one day, a few years ago, 20,000 people at the Ford Motor Company lost their job all in one day. Mm. And they didn't get fired for insubordination, they got fired for obedience because they did what they were told and did what they were told. And then one day, the boss realized they weren't making them enough money. So they just fired them all. And that's going to happen in more and more industries. So if it's going to likely going to happen to you, you might as well pick yourself first. Right. Go out and do something or, 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 or just start shipping, as you say. So along this path, I want to talk about you know, you talk about this a lot, actually, the lizard brain or the fear of failure or dealing with this fear. What? Well, first of all, do you still encounter this regularly? And what sort of tactics or strategies do you have that can help deal with the fear, the fear that makes us never want to step out of our comfort zone and the fear that makes us stay and wait to be picked? Okay. The resistance, as Steve Pressfield calls it, is hardwired into us. And it's the only reason that the powers that be got away with the brainwashing they did, which is that deep down, every human being is hardwired to avoid failure, to fear risk, to stay alive, to extract revenge, to be a wild animal. That's our amygdala. You can look it up. It's real. And it is the cause of a lot of discomfort and anxiety because it's trying to get us to survive, but the world it was optimized for disappeared 100,000 years ago. As a result, we have things like writer's block. Writer's block is a mythical construct. It doesn't really exist, except it afflicts a lot of people because they are afraid that if I write something on a blog, I'll get in trouble. And if I get in trouble, I'll lose my job. And if I lose my job, I'll lose my house. If I lose my house, I'll die. So the thought of writing a blog post is equivalent to dying. And so we avoid it. Now, once you know it's there and that you've been hardwired to experience this, you have a huge advantage because you know what it sounds like. You know what it feels like. You know what it smells like. So what are you going to do about it? Well, the wrong thing to do because it doesn't work is make it go away. You can't make it go away. You can try drinking or other things like that, but it doesn't work in the long run and it just makes you an alcoholic. You can't make it go away. But what you can do is use it as a compass. So I feel the resistance every single day. And where I feel it is when I'm about to do something important. Hmm. That's a great clue because it's the way I know I'm about to do something important. So when I feel it, I say, oh, thanks. Thanks for letting me know I'm onto something. 
and then I do that thing. That that ritual of listening for the fear and doing the thing it is afraid of does a few things. First of all, the amygdala is a wily beast and it will begin to calm down because it says, wait, I shouldn't react too much because he'll just do it. And two, it helps you become an artist because we have this inerrant sense of where the edge is. And the amygdala, the resistance helps point out where that edge is. And if you can go to those edges, you can make a difference. Hmm. So does it get easier? Does it, as you, is it like a muscle that you can practice? Yes, without a doubt. Okay. So, you know, I'll give you an example. Public speaking. Yes. Public speaking is a fear greater, according to Reader's Digest, among Americans than snakes. More people are afraid of public speaking than snakes, which I find hard to believe. I am not afraid of public speaking because public speaking for me is just speaking. And I've been speaking for so long that I know how to speak. So do you. So if you can recategorize certain behaviors for your resistance, for your amygdala, so that it is no longer on high alert, then you don't freak out. A great example of this is a tightrope walker or somebody who can drive a car. The first time you drove a car at 60 miles an hour on the highway, you were freaking out. Mm. You're not freaking out now. Mm. Well, that's, that's encouraging. So let's talk about your blog. You blog every day. You consistently ship every single day. You show up and you are a master of succinct blogging because you break every SEO type <laughs> marketing rule out there. So I love it. I love reading your blog. And you've also have stopped working with within the context, if you will, of traditional publishing. So you, you blog consistently every day. Now, when people start off blogging, they're blogging uh, to nobody. Right. And within this modern day age of infinite noise, how does one start a blog or start shipping work and be heard? So it's simple, but it is not easy. The simple answer is you tell 10 people. Everyone knows 10 people. Everyone is trusted by 10 people. They will look at what you made. And if it's good, then of their own volition, they will share it with other people because they are rewarded by those other people for doing so. So it will reach 20 people. And then it will spread. If that doesn't happen, you need to make better work. So use basically the market decides if your work is good enough for it to be spread. Well, I'm not sure... I would use the word good enough. But what I would say is this, when I started my blog, I had 10 readers and now I have a million. And it's not because I'm using tricks and SEO and link bait. It's because I am giving them something that they want to use to help them get what they want. And the number of places that we can do that and the number of audiences for which we can do that is very large. So I happen to write an all-purpose blog, but if you wrote a blog for people in the plumbing supply industry with a focus on HVAC, it's entirely possible that the eight people you know in that industry would start to read your blog. And if you were generous enough and profound enough in what you had to say, they would tell other people. And if you could get to 300 people reading it every day, that would be enough to dramatically increase your ability to do work in that industry. Hmm. What does the word entrepreneur or entrepreneurship mean to you? It seems like these days, 
everywhere you turn your head, it's it's very popular and uh, you know romanticized to be an entrepreneur. What 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 is what does that word mean to you? Yeah, it's a magical mindset, but I we need a better word for the magical mindset because it also means something else. And for me, what it means is the act of building a business bigger than yourself, mm. probably with someone else's money, a business that can work and thrive without you there, a business big enough or successful enough that you can sell it and give your investors a profit. That's what entrepreneurs do. They're not freelancers. They're not musicians. Right. They're not politicians. They are people who are doing a very specific thing. And I used to be an entrepreneur, and now I'm a freelancer. Freelancers are very different. Freelancers get paid when we work. Freelancers are craftspeople. We are doing the work ourselves and putting our name on it. And I love being a freelancer. I have some entrepreneurial projects, but the difference between a freelancer and entrepreneur is simple. An entrepreneur has to deal with infinity because your investors want an infinite return because you have the ability to grow to be infinitely big. You don't have to do that, but infinity looms large. Freelancers have to live in a finite world because there's only 24 hours in a day. So the way a freelancer achieves more is by getting better clients because better clients pay more, let you do better work, are easier to work with. So the goal of a freelancer isn't to get more, it's to get better. And if we could be clear with ourselves about what work we are seeking to do, it's a lot easier to keep score. Thank you for the answer uh, and for the clarity there between freelancing and entrepreneurs, entrepreneurship. One of the most pressing issues and my fear right now is, is the state of education. And I have two daughters and a third boy on the way. Wow, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And, but with that, you know, comes, comes this fear again that, uh, you know, what's the world going to look like? when they grow up and have to go to school. And of course, not to mention the costs associated with these private institutions. I see a, a, a need for there to be some sort of change in education. And you obviously see that need as well. You started the Alt-MBA. What do you think the future of education holds for us? And maybe you can explain to us, our, the audience, what the Alt-MBA is. Well, let's start with little kids first. If you have little kids, I beg you to read a book I wrote called Stop Stealing Dreams. It's free online. Mm. Uh, I did a TED Talk about it as well. It's at stopstealingdreams.com. And Great. it's an 80-page manifesto about what school is for, because I don't think most parents have thought about what school is for. And if more parents will ask the people in power what school is for, my hope is that school will get better. Uh, I think school is for teaching kids to solve interesting problems and to lead, not to become compliant cogs. Now, if you think it's for something else, that's fine, but we should definitely have the discussion. Mm. This thinking led me to create online courses. Online courses, I found, work for some people, but the typical massive online course has a 97% dropout rate. And I wanted to figure out if I could actually change people in an online setting. So the Alt-MBA, which is not an MBA, is a proudly unaccredited workshop for 150 people at a time with 20 live coaches, in people in 30 countries around the world, working um, 
in Slack and Zoom and WordPress to do 13 projects in groups, shifting around ideas, giving feedback, getting feedback, and sprinting for three or four hours a day for a month. And we try to teach people three things, how to make better decisions, how to see the world as it is, and how to persuade other people of your point of view. And we've had a thousand people take it so far, and I can say that it transformed people more on a per capita basis than anything I have ever done. Wow. It is uh, a profound shift for people, and we're not going to make it bigger. We're just going to keep doing it with the best people we can find, and it might be for the right person a really good fit. It's expensive, and you have to apply to get in, but compared to what you get, I'm told it's a bargain. Who should apply? What type of person should apply? Well, you know, we have people from giant companies like Google and Apple and Microsoft, and we have people from one-person freelance firms. Mm. We have a lot of nonprofits. Uh, we eagerly grant scholarships to people from 5013Cs in leadership positions. We have 75-year-olds and 18-year-olds. Mostly, it's a point of view and a posture, not what it says on your LinkedIn profile. We're looking for people who are restless and eager to make an impact and are willing to contribute and put themselves on the line while they do. Right. So not necessarily if you put entrepreneur on your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> so, Seth, what are you working on these days? What, other than your, you know, you, you consistently blog, obviously, and you have your cursory projects, your Alt-MBA, and I know you're involved with the Acumen Fund. Is there anything, any big project you're working on this year in 2017? Um, that's a good question. We're building a couple more institutional things in the spirit of courses that have impact. And I'm still doing a lot of writing. I love the work I get to do with charities because they really are in the marketing and change business. And if I can help, that's a privilege. So that's where I am. I'm, you know, nothing to announce today, but it's, uh, it's, quite, a, it's quite a journey. I find that you're one of these people that I have nothing to announce, but there's always something to announce. So <laughs> I, I always, I always have my ears peeled for that. Last couple of questions, Seth. I, I, we really appreciate your time, and and I know the audience is going to get a lot out of this interview. How do you want to be remembered? If if you know when someone says Seth Godin, you think marketer. I think I think of one of the world's greatest marketers, thought leader, public speaker, entrepreneur, author. How do you want to be remembered? I'd like to be remembered by what the people who learned from me taught other people. By what the people who learned from you taught to others. Yep. Hmm. I'm sure there's a lot there. <laughs> well, that was my second to last question. The last question is simply, where can people find you, follow you, and connect with you? I know you're, you, you follow Alt-MBA on Twitter, so I know you're not on Twitter. <laughs> I know. I don't use Twitter. Um, the best way to read my stuff is to type Seth into Google. I'm the first mm. match. Uh, I blog every day. You can subscribe for free. There's no commercial transaction there. And I've got 18 books that you can find at sethgodin.com. That's it. I don't coach. I don't invest. I don't advise. So it's not a good idea to send me an email because that's a bad habit of mine. Um, but mostly, I hope that you'll take these ideas, which I share as much as I can, and go make a ruckus with them. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Seth. We really appreciate it. A pleasure. Thank you, Jay, for doing this. Very generous of you. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week. Guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Seth as much as I enjoyed having it. As a thank you to my listeners, I will once again be giving away four copies of Seth's latest book that we talked about in the episode, which is called What to Do When It's Your Turn. And this is a beautiful book. It's a coffee table style book with a lot of beautiful illustrations, different than just the standard text type style book that he usually has put out in the past. I think you guys are going to really love this book. So all I ask that you do is subscribe, rate, and review my show on iTunes, The J. Kim Show. And uh, if you do so, just send me an email and let me know that you did it. The first four listeners to do so will win a free copy of the book, and I'll even ship it out to you anywhere in the world. Now, if you've already left a review, you can still enter the competition. You can just click on the links in the show notes, and you'll find all the details there. Obviously, the priority will go to those who leave a review, but in the event that people don't want to leave a review, then you'll still have an opportunity to participate. So good luck, and thank you for listening to the show. This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness.